Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 21, Two Minutes to Midnight. Let's get this show on the road. So, Drew, what did you think about this episode? Oh, the emotions this week. Bobby. (laughs) Bobby was the star of this episode, even if he wasn't like the main character. What he gets, what happens to him, all of it is just so magical. Two minutes to midnight is right. And again, I think I kept calling this the 11th hour as an episode title, which is a Doctor Who episode that's also like a penultimate episode. So like they do reference the 11th hour. Cass asks about the expression. I mean, this is super hulak. Just to throw in the fandom mashups, I decided on a complete whim this week to start rewatching Firefly. And in the first episode, they have their seedy underbelly mob guy who has the job for them. Who's this wise cracking, smart ass British guy? It's Crowley. Mark Shepard. <laughs> Why does Badger seem so familiar this time? Like he steals the show. He's he's amazing. I'm a Crowley girl. It is what it is. There you go. I know I'm a cast bitch, but like, I am so torn between those two sometimes when it comes to like, my love for the two of them, I'm torn. Where I see Dean ending up is very obvious, but between the two of them as far as favorite characters, it's tough. Are we ready for the recap? Count me down. Three, two, one. Two minutes to midnight. This episode is way too much going on, so I'm gonna go as fast as I can. We have Pestilence, who they go after, and then Cass is back, and he's injured. He's in a hospital. He takes a bus. Good for him. He gets the ring off Pestilence after Pestilence nearly kills Sam and Dean and gives them syphilis again. What's a demons giving them STDs? Anyways, side note. And, like, all of this amazing, what would be a full episode, takes place in the first, like, what, six minutes? Because now we have the whole major plot of dealing with death. And then it turns out Pestilence, despite dying, has a whole secret plot to, like, infect the entire world with the Croatoan virus. So they have to split up and go... A half a Sam and Bobby who can now walk because Crowley was like, guess what? On top of kissing you and slipping you some tongue and taking a photo of it and stealing your soul and telling you where death was. I gave you back your legs because I'm awesome that way. They go and stop the virus while Dean goes to meet death who just gives him pizza, steals his scythe back. Crowley does very little, but is amazingly comedic in all this. And then death's like, here's my ring, but you got to make sure Sam does things right. And then the episode ends with an amazing moment of Bobby and Dean having a conversation about, are you more afraid of losing this whole thing or your brother? Time. (gasps) That was a marathon. (laughs) And I definitely missed it. There's too much in this episode. You know, this is one of my frustrations I find with Supernatural is that they use up episodes to tell stories that we really don't care about. And then they'll make these really condensed episodes that really should have been two or three. I understand the condensing the pestilence part because it really was like an end to a means to get to this like the crow and toe virus thing, which is even then feels so unnecessary. It just feels like a way to artificially pad out the pestilence story. Like you'll see, like just writing art, writing at least my notes this week for uh, story time. It felt so hard to be like, oh, let's focus on the brothers and every other character because they deserve their own block of time because they all do so much this week. Heck, Death almost got his own section in my notes. I have thoughts about Death. We need to talk about Death. But for now, can we go to the long game? Yes, let's go, because there's so much. 
the brothers finally meet and defeat Pestilence. And also, like you said, it takes them like a whole less than 10 minutes. So I think that they're basically getting really good at hunting horsemen of the apocalypse. Which kind of sucks that like you get like really good at it and then you realize you can only do it four times. And then, of course, after doing it three times, the last one is like N levels higher than them. It's like unfair. I have some thoughts about that. I wish they had elaborated a bit more because I thought that it was really cool. We find out that after Van Van Nice, Van Nice, is that how you pronounce it? Van Nice. It's one of those things I've always, I've only ever heard it said, never like read it. So when I see it right, I'm like, what the hell is Van Nuys? I'm like, oh, Van Nuys. Oh, Van Nuys? What is that? <laughs> so after Van Nuys, Cass appeared on a shrimping boat in Delacroix, Delacroix, I think is how we pronounced it, which I just found out and think is in Louisiana. <laughs> He tells Dean that his battery is drained and that he's currently very human. Again, this this elaborates on the what we talked about, uh, ironically, in our last uh, Horseman episode dealing with um, famine. The kind of like human things that come out of Cass in like moments of weakness. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the last time that Cass will be human. So I just think that this is actually quite interesting to see how this is turning out in this particular episode. To answer your question of the last episode, Bobby did make the deal with Crowley. They kissed to seal the deal. Crowley took a picture and Bobby used tongue. There is too much to get into here. I'm sure we'll find time for. That entire back and forth was just the most like... Why'd you have to use tongue? (laughs) Sam's face for me. And this is now me saying that maybe there is a little more to this, like, the end of the world, last night on Earth speech kind of thing. And maybe Bobby was like, whoa, one in Rome. (laughs) Do you think that Bobby gave Crowley the last night on Earth speech? (laughs) Or did Crowley give it to Bobby? (laughs) We are introduced to death with the best character intro since Cass. It is just sheer perfection. And Julian Richings kills it. If, if I need to make it clear how important I thought that was, how great that scene was, I rewound to watch it again. And then when I was done the episode, I was like, one more time on YouTube. To me, it is on the level of Cass's introduction. There is something about just like a well-shot scene with the right tone and music that can do so much in so, with so little. Good job. Good job, everybody. All around. This is not the last time that Dean will be holding Death's scythe. Well, I think it's technically a sickle and not a scythe, given its shape. That is irrelevant, but I'm intrigued by that as a uh, notion. There you go. Holding something that can kill death is not, it's not the last time that Dean will do that. Bobby gets the use of his legs back after Crowley added a teeny little sub-A clause to his deal. I love the the verbiage that is used there, because it seems very like, I need to make this seem not special, Like, I'm doing something good for you because I want to. We're going to talk about that, actually. But also, remember when I said I needed Bobby to get something this season, whether it be like just like just some little bit of something. And while I understand the ableist side of this, of the like fixing someone by giving them back the use of their legs, given the way it was taken from him and the what it meant to him on a on a more like character driven level. While I don't love the ableist vibes, I really love this moment for him. Well, we're going to talk about that too. So Michael has decided to use Adam as his vessel. You know what? Like, just make up your damn mind already. We finally learn the end game of the demon blood. 
And basically, in order to be Lucifer's vessel, Sam would need to drink, and I quote, more demon blood than he's ever drunk to keep him from exploding. Yes, I'm not sure which of those two sentences are more scary, the having to drink that much or that not enough means exploding. Not just like, you won't be able to handle him, you'll die, you'll you'll reject him and you'll be dead, or like, no, no, you will explode. I know, it's just very grotesque. I think it's not out of pocket to say that Cass is using Dean's old sawed-off shotgun in this episode. We see very clearly he's being equipped by weapons from their arsenal. And we've only ever seen one sawed-off shotgun, and there was only one in this episode. So we have to make this, like, a very clear line. And given how much special we know that gun is to Dean, because he's brought up before making his first sawed-off shotgun... And he does somewhat hold a deer. He rare, I, I think he's only ever, he, we've only ever seen Sam use it like once or twice. And it's almost always when it's being handed to him by Dean in like a moment. Death says about God that at the end, I'll reap him too. Which I think is really important to remember. I got a vibe from that line that this was not going to be just a like menacing line. That this was going to be a more important moment of... What does that make death exactly in comparison to God if he's the one who will ultimately take him? Yeah, the whole conversation about the chicken or the egg and who came first, it's something. Because like you said, what does that mean for death in terms of who would win in a fight? (laughs) I have my money on one of them and I'm not going to say who just yet. And the episode ends with Bobby asking Dean if he's afraid of losing or afraid of losing his brother. We're going to talk about this episode in in its entirety, and we are going to have to, I believe, end on this point anyway. So I'll save my thoughts for there, because maybe I'll change my opinion. But I, I want to talk about the rest of the episode before we jump to that point. So today our theme is coalition. And I'm going to read you the definition that I found on Wikipedia, because I think it's one that'll be really useful for us. So a coalition is formed when two or more people or groups temporarily work together to achieve a common goal. The term is most frequently used to denote a formation of power in political or economical spaces. I think that for this episode, it could be really interesting to sort of ask ourselves, like, what does coalition require? Or maybe like, what are the ingredients necessary for coalition? And I think that through our conversation with the characters, we can start identifying like, what exactly they bring to the table in terms of like building this really unlikely alliance together. There is one very key word you said in your definition, and I feel like you already know what word I'm going to say that really kind of like stood out a bit temporarily. Coalition almost doesn't like, it feels like it's like, again, that way that we use the English language. We try to like delineate why two words exist for something. So a coalition versus an alliance, the coalition is like predefined to have an end or to be temporary. I don't know if that's true or if that's more correct otherwise, but in my mind, it almost feels right. So we use the term coalition often, particularly in our Canadian political system. I know that they do also in the UK and Australia, basically anywhere that has like a Westminster style government where there's more than two parties generally. So I'm going to exclude the US from this conversation. So in our country, when a political party is elected, but it's elected in minority, they have to form a coalition with other political parties in order to govern the country. And so 
The ideal behind this is that it forces politicians to compromise and to say like, well, we don't agree on these things, but we agree on those things. And so maybe we can work on those while we govern during this time. And so that's why, yes, absolutely, coalition Ten, coalitions tend to be temporary because the moment that your interests no longer align, the moment that another election is called. This episode, we kind of see a lot of those moments of like, okay, well, let's work together for now because we have X number of common interests. But as soon as it's done, I'm gonna go right back to killing y'all. Yeah, there you go. And that's, and that's why baby girl Crowley did nothing wrong. But anyway, do you want to get us started with Sam? So this episode kind of divided into two parts. Like first we have the Sam and Dean going uh, after Pestilence with the surprise guest cast straight off his bus. And what we can take away here is kind of a very general point for the entire team free will thing. And it just shows how well they work together. Like, I feel like we need this as a base point for like a true team before we can then look at other ancillary coalitions alliances and teams that form from this centerpiece like here we literally have Cass who's barely holding on had to take a bus for the first time let alone can use he barely uses a cell phone so I can only imagine how that bus ride went like I need to see that video and you have Sam and Dean who are like being covered in diseases and on the verge of death but somehow just the three of them being there together and holding each other up they're able to ultimately defeat pestilence that moment and it's it's one of those moments where it's like this shouldn't have worked like we've seen how powerful the horsemen are Cass barely able to stand up with a knife and the two brothers just being there for support should not be enough but it is and what this does is i think it really just helps sort of like take team free will and be like look how good they are yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm glad that you're bringing up like this section of the of the episode, because I think I would have just skipped it entirely. But you're right, like the reason why they were able to defeat Pestilence is thanks to Cass, because like, if I can make a very rare sports metaphor, and I can't believe this is happening, but Sam and Dean like basically take it as far as they can, but it's Cass that comes in clutch and basically gets the puck in the net. I just like to say I love how you said you were going to do a sports metaphor and you went for the one sport that us Canadians understand, which is hockey. I know. I'm feeling very patriotic today, I guess. (laughs) This whole conversation has a bit more to do with Cass than with Sam, but like, I think that it sort of hints at in order to have a coalition, then you need to have existing relationships with people. In this moment, we kind of get like a base level of like what our team's strength is so that we can now see what happens next. Like we we have a starting point, we have a base, we can now begin experimenting and making our permutations. Because ultimately where Sam truly shines in this week uh, is when he and Dean actually split up. And weirdly, it feels like they split up and are both just okay with it. Like this is the first time I can recall where they split up and it was like, we're splitting up. Great idea. We're both on the same page. This is the right way to go. There was no argument. There was no debate. There was no, oh, but uh, we can't split up. This might happen. And we'll have to, no, they were just like, we're good. It's a non-issue. And it's because at this new point of trusting one another, I feel like, again, this is another example of just like reminding us how powerful they are as a team, how much they've grown. It feels like even if they are not physically side by side, 
they're like, and this is so cheesy, they're with each other in spirit. But like, just the knowledge that you have a teammate who has your back, even if they're not physically present, does so much in this. Right. And I think that this is something that Bobby highlights for us and for Dean at the end of the episode, where when he says, like, back at Nivius, uh, I watched that kid pull one civilian out after another. He must have saved 10 people, never stopped, never slowed down. We're hard on him, Dean. We've always been. But in the meantime, he's been running into burning buildings since he was like, what, 12? I just want to very briefly mention that talking about running into burning buildings for Dean, given how he had to flee his own burning home at the age of four while holding a six-month-old Sam, was like a heck of a way for Bobby to make his point. Especially at this point in the series where we're like about to close like a five-season narrative arc where that moment was just so foundational to everything that the brothers have lived since. If we can come back to Sam, because <laughs> we're doing that thing again where we're talking about Sam, but Sam's nowhere to be found in the conversation. Such an important moment for Sam is just telling the, having, having the audience understand this like refreshed view of him. Our perception of Sam actually is Dean's perception of Sam that we adopt as our own. So if we can come back to Sam and not Dean's perception of him, I think that seeing him for us, for the audience, seeing him without Dean sort of gives us like the opportunity to really see him for a hot minute and see how much he has grown. So if we can think back to season one, Sam, like he's this 22-year-old college student who walked away from hunting entirely. And then around mid-five season, he's like a young hunter who's being seduced by power. And then now he's this 27-year-old like seasoned hunter who isn't afraid to put his life on the line to get bystanders like outside the line of fire. If we're, again, talking about closing narrative arcs, I think that this is giving us an idea of like where Sam's story is headed. And I just really love that development. They basically stated their intention, which was, we need to be equals. But it never really, it, it obviously never felt that way. It was very much like the, okay, I'm saying it out loud, doesn't mean it's true. It slowly but surely changed to become this. I think our biggest tipping point I brought up was um, when they go and face uh, Zachariah and and his terrible ass finally. And like, this is like the final evolution of that. Like this is a full on Sam and Dean are now on equal footing and seeing Sam excel and like push himself in this moment away from Dean, but under the eyes of his father figure, Bobby and, and then having Bobby reiterate that to the audience through his conversation. With Dean, I think it's just like, like we have really reached pinnacle Sam in his journey at this point. Like, I feel like he's really hit, like, a true milestone. I think in terms of coalition, like, what this is showing is that we need to show trust in other people or, like, the other parties who are with us within the coalition in order for it to be successful. Like, we need to let those people be who they are and trust that they will ultimately do what's best for the good of the coalition. This allows us to view a team and how well they work together and apart because they understand and they have like a common goal and there's no more like shakiness or like who's in charge. Can I really give them feedback? Are we on the right level? Do we see each other eye to eye? Like that's kind of gone now. And I think even by extension, pulling cast down to being 
more human air quotes in this episode it further exemplifies that for this core coalition yeah i completely agree do we want to move on to dean oh i do so dean is a bit more on his plate this episode and not just pizza uh, he's really burdened by this idea of Sam letting Lucifer take the vessel to throw him in the cage. And, like, he's not angry about it as much as he could be. Like, I really feel that Dean... Dean is quick to anger when, like, he's confronted with an idea that he doesn't approve of. Like, he is very much the, like, you know, I'm gonna throw my brother in a literal jail cell to wean him off demon blood... Because I love him and that's the right thing to do, even though it's terrible and wrong and hurtful. But here he's like, I don't agree, but I'm going to keep having the conversation. I'm going to keep this dialogue open and I'm going to, you know, he's not sure, but he thinks it's the worst plan and he's hoping others will tell him how dumb it is. But everyone, even death itself, seems to think it's the best plan of action, which I think is hilarious. Like, just, it's so, like, it's, it feels like, it feels like it could have been a comedy note and it wasn't, so kudos for not making it one when they don't have to, where, like, every time he brings this up, Cass, Bobby, Death, I don't think he brings it up with Crowley, at least, but, like, the people he trusts the most, he brings it up, and they all kind of go, like, yeah, it's the right move, like, I understand why you hate it, but hey, look at you expressing your feelings and having a conversation about it and looking for feedback. You may, it, it kind of feels like the whole, like, you know, ask mom for permission. She says, no, let's go ask dad double our chances. Like, he's just, he's asking everyone, hoping to get someone to finally side with him. They don't. And by the end of it, he still isn't upset. Like, he's clearly disturbed by it. But he's not, like, throwing a fit the way you'd expect him to when he's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're touching on something that's really important here. Because he's not saying no, per se, to the plan. Like, he's just sort of looking around for people to back him up in saying, like, that it's a bad idea. And yeah, I think, like, being told by death, like, this god-level cosmic entity who has, like, everything to gain in making sure that Lucifer is actually put back in the cage. Death just told him that Sam is the only one who can do that. I think that deep down, Dean knows that the plan could work. But at what cost? And I think that this brings us to the second ingredient of coalition, which is sacrifice. Because in order to consolidate power, you need to decide like what's most important to you and what you would be willing to sacrifice. And here Dean is realizing that the cost of saving the world might very well turn out to be Sam's life. You need to not just find the best person for the job in that group. There's also times where there's something you may think you're the best suited for or you would be good at, but you need your strength somewhere else. So you need to like redistribute tasks or like rights. And while I think Dean is so likely to be the one who sees himself as the self-sacrifice one, because his goal was always to save Sam, even if it meant losing himself, as we've seen him do. And here he is watching his brother make that choice, but in a way where it's not just like, I'm throwing my life away to save the world. It's like, this is a calculated move. It's what I can do. It's what I have the best skill at. It's where like, this is the move I was made for. I have to do it. And there is no alternative. And we're hitting, we're down to the wire. There isn't an option anymore. And I think we're at a point now where 
basically all the distractions are gone. Like there's there's always sort of been like a we'll talk about this later. Let's go do X. Uh, and now Dean is sitting here with the four rings and apparently the instruction manual whispered to him softly by death. The next moment is literally go time. And he's still unsure. And he finally asks the last person that matters most to him. Like, you know, when you think about the, the you know, we keep using coalition because it's our theme. But at the end of the day, the found family and like the person he sees the most respect for, the person he trusts the most, the person who... I feel like is the last to be asked about it because he thinks this is the person who's most likely going to talk him into it is asking Bobby that final question. You know, this is sort of bringing back up a lot of feelings that I have about John and Bobby being polar opposites because I had noted down that like Dean has basically been raised to protect Sammy. So like above and beyond the love that he has for his brother, he's literally been brainwashed to believe that like his main purpose in life is to be his brother's keeper. And so this has a lot of like last season finale feels and vibes because Bobby is here being like super kind in asking the question the way that he does because he knows the answer Everyone knows the answer. And like much like the metaphorical horse, like Bobby can take Dean to water, but he can't force him to drink. And I think that his question is meant to be a really kind and gentle way to sort of help Dean realize what's about to happen. And that goes against everything that John would have ever told him to do. I think you've you've put it into a really good perspective because I think the Johnism here would be just the no, you have to protect your brother at all costs because he's family, not the save the world thing. So to go back, kind of what I spouted out earlier uh, before story time was my feelings towards this question that Bobby does pose to Dean. I've had him in to think about it, but I still want to voice my opinion on it. And I think it is, maybe it's just the way it's worded, but it feels like an actual question when the reality is, like you said, it's completely rhetorical. We know the answer. We know we know what Dean fears more, but we know that though he fears that more, he fears the loss of his brother more than he fears the loss of the world. He understands that that's one person's feelings versus the entire world. He knows he can't change the world for his views. Yeah, and I but I completely agree with you. Like this is literally what Bobby is doing. It is a rhetorical question, but it's one that. I don't think Dean has thought about before. And I think that sometimes, you know, when people aren't really ready to admit something to themselves, like you can't just put them in front of that fact because that's just too much. If Bobby had said, like, you need to let Sam go, Dean might not have taken that very well. Whereas in the form of a question it brings the answer back to Dean, even though we all know what needs to happen. I mean, it's like therapy tropey almost in the sense of like, don't give someone the answer, give them the question that they themselves can answer without even having to take a second guess of it, guess at it, and then make, the have, make them come to their own realization versus you coming there for them. Do you want to tell us about Cass a bit? You mean the hero who defeated Pestilence and last minute savior of Sam in the drug facility? So it has these two amazing moments and then otherwise is surprisingly minimal in this episode in terms of development. 
again, we have a moment where he agrees uh, that Sam's plan might be the best option here, or at least isn't the worst option he's ever heard. And I like that he's the only one who kind of agrees with Dean while still telling him that he's wrong. Like, I kind of like that it's like that kind of moment of like, oh, no, you you could never be wrong, Dean. Sam might be right. Doesn't mean you're wrong, though. <laughs> like, you're right. It's a really dumb plan. But I think we got to do it, buddy. But, like, I love that even in an episode where he is, like, mostly sideline, he's still, like, really funny, really badass. He's, like, you see how useful he is on the team from his uh, giving his input, being kind of, like, supporting. Uh, and even when he's not an angel and he's more human than he could be, he is still putting, giving it his all, even if he knows he's not as useful as he could be. I love a good human cast storyline. And I had actually forgotten that like we get this little glimpse at this stage in the show. And so that I think that that was really nice to be like, oh, it's true. They did toy with this idea very early on. So I, I like that. I like Dean's reaction to finding out that Cass is human too. I thought it was interesting also to see Cass as like the first person who is like openly approving of Sam's plan of saying yes to Lucifer saying that basically like he and Dean often exceed his expectations. And I think that it shows like trust and faith and a kind of faith that he had previously lost uh, when it wasn't God. And I also think that that is our third ingredient right here, faith that the plan will succeed, like faith that things are going to work out. Like you have to believe in what you're doing in order to be able to do it. But you also need to believe on your teammates. Like, you know, it's one thing to say I'm part of a team. We talked about that before. We talked about trust. Now we're talking about faith. There's no buts, just ands. <laughs> yes, sorry. And it's clear here that, that he, the, the faith is there. The belief is there. And I like the way it's worded, too, of the, like, they always do exceed his expectations. It's It's a nice way to put it of, like, I've seen you do things that I would have said, this is stupid. And then you go ahead and do it and it works. And I'm like, huh them winchesters yeah it's like he's inspired by them you know i'm actually also gonna add something else about Cass because again like we're speaking about like closing narrative arcs uh and we're sort of pulling at that thread in this episode that's been like a long time coming where like after Cass reunites with the winchesters like he says that it's you know the 11th hour he's useless and all he has is like dean's old sawed off which is nothing compared to what he used to be okay and I think that we're touching on the fourth ingredient here, uh, which is humility. And not humility in a way of like making yourself smaller than you are, but more in the sense of like knowing your worth and acting your worth. And Cass is more than his angel powers, like you said, and like we've been discussing. He brings more to the table than, than that. And a part of humility, I think, is knowing that and acting accordingly. But this is also very clear. It's, you know, it's that delegation of it's one thing to say, like, I know I'm good at this, but I need someone else to do it now so I can do something else. It's also knowing where you don't excel and where it makes more sense to have someone else support you in a way versus trying to take on a load you can't take yourself. Absolutely. Okay, Crowley? Yes, please. Okay, so mixed results on my prediction from last week about uh, the soul um, taking and... That in the end, you know, the fact that he uses it like an insurance policy seems very self-serving. The going above and beyond to help Bobby, like giving the poor man his freaking wind finally that he's needed all season. 
seems very out of place. Like, if it truly was a self-serving move to, like, I'm taking your soul and holding on to it so they can't, you know, screw me over because if they screw me over, then you're gone. There's no need to go above and beyond and do something nice. Like, that's totally against the character you've built. So the fact that he's doing this really feels like, again, like, this is where that word temporary comes in. This is clearly a temporary truce. That's the intention. Will it stay temporary? Will it go back as soon as all this is over? That we don't know. But this starts to feel like... This starts to feel like there's some personal attachment going on. And maybe when all this is over, he might not be so ready to leave this little team friendship he's built. Listen, I have discovered that I am a Crowley apologist, so I don't think it's self-interested or self-serving. I think he's right. I, uh, Sam is always trying to kill him. He's got to protect himself. Which, I mean, okay, again, it is self-serving. It's rightfully self-serving, and I agree with him to do it. Like, at the end of the day, like, he's still going to keep his word. He's just using this as a bargaining token to make sure he gets to keep his word. So, yes, on board. Yeah, and I think if we're talking about like what Crowley does for Bobby, uh, this isn't something that Bobby asked for, right? And it's not something that was ever really used as a bargaining chip uh, within that conversation. So Crowley really put the initiative to put it there. And I think that that's the fifth ingredient to coalition, which is goodwill. And as much as I do love Crowley, I agree that he is sometimes self-interested and self-serving. Um, but I think that that's part of the appeal. And maybe he thought at that time that this show of goodwill would actually earn him more security with the Winchesters. Kind of like that idea that the coalition would be a little bit more permanent. Maybe he's like, oh, well, you know, if I do this for them, then maybe if we manage to get out of this, then they'll let me do my thing at the as the king of the crossroads, you know? There was this whole theory of like, you know, like, is it worth believing in God? Like whether you live a good life and live according to God's will, you get into heaven or you don't do those things and you go to hell. And then if there is no God, you did a bunch of good things, no payoff. You did a bunch of bad things, no payoff. Like at the end of the day, you're better off just being a good person because if there is a God in the end, even if you don't believe in it, you've done good things and get into heaven. This kind of feels like Crowley's like you know what, there's no harm in doing good to these people because if I do end up having to stay on their side for the long run or I do become attached to them, they'll at least like me because I kind of like them and I guess this is okay. I'd rather I'd rather have a friend than an enemy when possible. Exactly, and I think that that's where the goodwill comes from, right? It's that idea that this doesn't cost Crowley anything to do it, um, but it's also not something that was requested. And so just to kind of like do, to go a little bit above and beyond here, I think is is kind of showing like, hey, like I am a part of this. It like shows that he's engaged in this weird alliance. I, I'm a team player. I'm not just riding on your coattails. Exactly. Okay, well now we only have Bobby left. Do you want to get us started? Oh, just I'm so happy. Like, sure, a demon has a soul because he's a team player and he knew it was worth it to help the team. But Crowley, like I said, just took pity on him and gave him more than what he asked for. Uh, and again, like we said, this might be more reason for Crowley than anything else. But the fact that he still did it, like, and I think you even said, like, it didn't cost him anything. I, I still argue, like, we don't understand the full logistics of this, like, magic. Like, I, I imagine there's got to be some level of, like, trickery behind it. Like, this took him some level of effort because he can't just, like, 
make every wish perfect every time. Like, there is some level of, like, crafting, as he said. Is it that he can't or that he won't? Again, I think that's love for debate, and that's where I'm curious. Um, <laughs> I am a fierce Crowley defender. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he had to put some effort into doing it versus just like, oh, and while I'm at... Because at that point, while I'm at it, uh, all of your weapons can kill demons now because I said so. Like, there has to be some level of like, I could make this work in a way. Yeah, up to a certain point kind of thing. Like, I feel like there's, like, I feel I had literally imagined him sitting there at night with, like, that one lamp on his desk with, like, uh, papers everywhere being like, okay, well, if I change the wording to this, then, yes, he can have his legs back, but then, oh, then I have to do this. Okay, no, scratch, try it again. Like, he had to actually work out this magic in a way, like. We'll, we'll talk about Crowley and the orig- origins of his name. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, though. It's Bobby as the last bastion of wisdom to Dean in this coalition, in this family, in this friendship, in this team. You know, cast Sam, death, uh, I think Crowley potentially, I don't know if it's ever actually stated, have all kind of led to the point of, yes, Dean, though we think this is crazy, this is the right move for Sam to do. And like some of them share their doubts, some of them agree with him on the emotional level of it. Bobby thinks it may be the only move and Dean alone is the one. And while I don't think it should all rest on him, uh, like I don't think Dean going, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to be self selfish here and say like Sam can't do it. Doesn't magically make it not happen. But I think at this point, Dean is been given everything he needs to be able to accept it a bit more. And I think Bobby is the linchpin in that. I mean, I think you said that really well. Like Bobby brings like that sixth ingredient. And I think that that's wisdom, like the wisdom to observe Sam in this case and the wisdom to speak truth to those who need it. Dean. Yeah. So you want to talk more about death. Of course I want to talk more about death. He's a part of this coalition. <laughs> I, you know what? I didn't consider it, but now that you say it, like it's really clear he is. So I mean, he gives he gives his uh, his ring. Like he does he doesn't destroy Chicago. You know, like I think I think he does a lot of stuff here. And the reason I bring this up is because, like, in this conversation with Dean uh, in the pizzeria, he basically crystallizes the overarching nature of coalition, I think, which is that oftentimes you have to coalesce with people that you either don't like or don't agree with. But in that moment, your interests and your goals are aligning in such a way that the rewards of uniting are greater than the consequences of not. There is on one hand that classic expression of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Like just because they share a common enemy and they can work towards the same goal doesn't mean they have to. This feels a lot more like we are both intelligent creatures. We can both see this from for what it is and understand that it's not just a matter of like, let's ignore each other and do our own thing and just not get in each other's way. Let's actively work together and put aside differences of sacrifice. You know, normally Dean is the, let's kill a horseman and steal the ring. In this case, let's not do that. I'll give you the ring, explain how to use them, I you you don't get you don't do your normal killing thing. I don't do my normal killing thing, which I'm assuming is kind of his thing. And let's move on to how can we help each other versus just ignore each other. And I think that's really where we draw that line between like a coalition versus just like a temporary ceasefire. I I honestly completely agree with you, and I think that I probably wasn't very clear in what I was trying to say because like 
to me, this, this, this active decision to work with people that you don't really like means that you're going through all of the ingredients or all of the steps that we talked about. So you have to actively trust them. You have to actively have faith in the plan. You have to actively show goodwill. You have to actively be humble. You have to actively show wisdom, like the wisdom to choose, to pick and choose your battles here. And, um, and I, I think that's more what I was trying to say. So I, I completely agree with you. Like this isn't just a passive thing. This is a very active and intentional action that's happening. I also love how you're right. I think like that, I'm like replaying the like very brief but powerful dinner table scene between Dean and death. And like, he hits all those points so perfectly. Absolutely. And that that's honestly like that conversation is why we are talking about this theme. <laughs> Can we also then just say that the seventh secret ingredient to a coalition is good pizza? I mean, I think that that's fair. Like the whole beer and pizza thing is like what bring, it's like a final thing to draw you together. Like we can share a beer and pizza. We can do anything. Who was behind this episode? Because I, I just like blown away by how good this episode was. It did so much. Like, yes, like while I complained that it tried to do too much, I think we both kind of agreed with it felt like it was worth it to get as much as we got. I mean, so listen, I'm, I don't blame the writer of this show for trying to do too much. I think that's poor planning on the part of the showrunner. <laughs> Sorry, Kripke. Um, but I think it takes a good writer to take this and like make something as magical as they did today. Absolutely. And we can send our thank you letters to Miss Sarah Gamble, who wrote this episode, and Phil Scritchia was the director. With a grain of salt, I always say, I know there is um, an air about Miss Gamble and her work on this show, but to detach ourselves from everything else and look at a specific moment, uh, she did an amazing job this week. Sarah Gamble writes fantastic episodes. Um, we've had problems with a lot of her episodes, but in terms of the action, the pacing, uh, we've never had an issue with that. Again, it's more than just the director. There's an entire team, the cinematographer, the cameraman, the editing, but Death's introduction. <sighs> Big props to director of photography Serge Ladoussard in this, because uh, excellent work. Oh, I'm glad you had their name because damn, they deserve a kudos for that one. <laughs> I was going to say, like, with a name like that, he's got to be from our neck of the woods. Absolutely, he is. Would you like to read us something from the Hunter's Journal? I knocked on the door and played dumb. Until I could clearly see all four of my demon targets come to listen to me make up some story that kept them busy. I asked if I could charge my phone and you know, reach into my coat and drew my shotgun. All four of them ate rock salt. It was then when the other 18 or so demons poured down the stairs and I realized maybe, maybe I'd fucked up a wee bit. I guess when counting the missing people's reports in this town, should have checked the neighboring towns too. I bolted as fast as I could, rounding the wraparound deck into the backyard to get into the woods. I took cover behind the first thing large enough I could find. It took a few seconds of calming my breathing and putting my 500 BPM heart back to a livable level when I finally let some of that blood flow back to my brain. Why was there a solid concrete and rebar reinforced structure in the woods behind this house? Before I could decide whether opening it would be stupid or dumb, I heard the unmistakable rustling of a dozen or so demons rushing back out to come find me. 
I just started blind firing over the structure and trying to get something, giving me a chance or an opening to escape. And that's when I heard cracking. A dead tree keeling over and crashing right above me onto this Suddenly, every demon stopped. It was like they all vanished except for the sound of their belabored breathing. Stupid as it might have been, I, I got up and I looked and left cover. The concrete cracked. I guess the tree had enough weight to do it. And now the concrete was moving. Like something trying to escape. Clearly whatever was in there didn't want to be in there, and the demons didn't want it out. The next few seconds were a blur. Rubble and bits of debris everywhere, strewn across the woods and sky. Something rushed between the trees from its now vacant cage and ripped each demon into literal human confetti bits. Finally, I stood alone in a now much more bloody red shade of dirt and debris when I felt something large drop behind me. I turned, and I saw it. Nothing. A very large and heavy nothing. Holding a femur in what I assume might have been where its mouth could be, it placed it gently by my feet, and I felt the thud as it dropped down to the ground, as if asking me to play with it. Oh, is it a hellhound? It's a heck pupper! Hey, like I said, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Bunch of demons want to lock up a, a hellhound to use for their nefarious deeds, and you set it free by accident. You got yourself a new loyal companion. I kind of love that. I just, ugh. There's something about the hellhounds, like I know, like, how traumatizing they are to Dean. And we now have technically one on our side in Crowley's. And I just, like, I love that. I just, like, the idea of, like, here is an animal companion that should be evil but is on your side just, like, tickles all my, like, fantasy genre trope moments. Well, I'd honestly like to briefly touch upon, like, Crowley giving Bobby the use of his legs back. Um, Because, like, we've both, like, made pretty clear that we don't like it when disabled characters like magically lose their disability and we also don't like that this trope is used as a way to say or to show that they are quote-unquote whole again and I guess my question here is is this what's happening here because personally when I started to really think about it I wasn't sure interestingly the last time that we had this discussion was in 103 dead in the water that was also written by Sarah Gamble by the way about Lucas, who was the little boy who wasn't speaking because of the trauma of seeing his dad drown. And at the end of the episode, he's shown like fully speaking as if like overnight, the trauma had healed. I think this to me is when I tend to like purse my lips because it's, it's the kind of, of representation of trauma and disability that seems to say that like people can just get over trauma and disability and be normal again imagine me doing massive air quotes here and in bobby's case like if i'm entirely honest i never really understood the metaphysics behind Cass not being able to give him the use of his legs back at the beginning of the season it never really made sense to me that he lost the use of his legs it felt very much like a narrative device to one him losing his legs the use of his legs and two Cass not being able to give him back the use of his legs so I think that when Crowley was able to do it, like it didn't shock me in the way that I was shocked in Dead in the Water. And maybe I should have been. I'm not sure. I don't know. So this is one of those, like, I always feel icky when I say it because I think this is something that can be done 
if it's done right and while I, I think there is still like a small amount of ableism in using an injury like this, uh, a disability, a disability like this as a like, here's a flaw to be fixed. The fact that it's effectively its cause and its solution are magic based in this case. It isn't a matter of like, you know, oh, you got over your trauma because the problem was solved and magically trauma just goes away because trauma is just a thing that we can get rid of. That feels wrong to me where this is like, understand we are returning to you something that was taken and while a better story may have been able to write something around the fact that he doesn't need his legs to be whole, which I think was a major part of this, was accepting it for him finally. Again, I'm never going to sit here and disagree with someone who sees this as wrong because I think it's a very appropriate response to this. In this case, I can shoo it away enough to swallow it and continue on with the episode happily in the fact that it is being done through magic and it's more of a return to a status quo as a gift for someone who has made so much sacrifice and has learned to live with his sacrifice. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that you are touching upon something that's really important here is that Bobby has spent a lot of the season accepting this. So much so that when he made the deal, he didn't even think about it. Oh my God, that's it. Okay, no, you, yeah, that, that, okay, you just, you, I don't know what it was you just said, but you triggered it for me. (gasps) It was the fact that doing this did not make him whole again. He was already whole. To use another really weird pull from like cinema history for this, it's kind of the Pinocchio thing of Pinocchio becomes a real boy in the end because he's already learned to be a real boy. And it's just physically making the change for the sake of narrative flavor. But the reality is he had learned all of his lessons. He had learned to be a good boy. He had learned to like care for people and have a conscience. And then the final moment of like, poof, now you're a real boy is purely contextual flavor. So it's the fact that Bobby doesn't request it, the fact that Bobby has accepted this and has is living with it and succeeding with it, it can be given to him without it feeling as icky because it isn't a fixing him thing. It's just a, hey, you had legs once before, have them again for a bit while I have your soul, I guess, as a thank you. But like, you don't need them. I'm just giving them to you because you can have them. This week, we are electing to not have a community voicemail just because this episode had so much to discuss and we are running so long and we don't want to do a disservice by taking someone's voicemail here and then trying to cram it in where it's like already too full. So we still want to remind you to please send us your three minute voicemails uh, to respond to anything we discussed today. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward@gmail.com, And we will, uh, Mary and I will still be answering the following question. Why did Crowley take a picture of him and Bobby kissing for our Roadhouse patrons and our coffee supporters in our Impala talk? Drew, would you like to lead us into our reflection and call to action? I kind of just went with the really obvious one because it is such a obvious and powerful point in this episode and it's acceptance. You know, sometimes we have to accept the answer we don't want. And I think this is very evident in Dean this week. And I think it's something that I have done at least personally, which is the asking a question, even though you really don't want a certain answer or you, you know, you're wrong, but you just need someone else to tell you, you just like, you're looking for someone to agree with you 
because if you don't do it, if you don't get the validation, then you have to admit you're wrong. And I, I think that could really cause lingering pain because whether you hold on to it for too long or you it, it, you don't get what you're looking for in the answer, like like I said, I have been there before and it's what I saw in Dean this week was I expected him to get more angry about it. So my call to action is to, again, hopefully as rare as these do come in life, that I can be like Dean, that I can ask the question, get the answer, even if it's not the answer I want to hear, and be civil. And hopefully, my assumption is the answer he's going to ultimately give himself in this episode is to do the right thing. I think that Dean is also like answering a question for himself, right? I think that's that's the hardest part is that he's giving himself an answer that he doesn't really want to hear. And I think that those moments are can be really hard, so... He does it with such grace, and I only hope I can do the same when I get stuck with those situations. And Mary, what would you like to share with us this week? So this week I've been thinking about teamwork and what it takes to like have successful teamwork happening. And I feel called to like think about the ways in which like I'm a good teammate, but also the ways in which I would need to improve. I don't know about you, but like whenever I work in a team, like I'm very quick to kind of like be like, oh well, this person, blah, 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 blah. But I'm also not so quick to see what I'm doing wrong. And I think that for me, it has a lot to do with like not voicing my expectations and my boundaries. I think I need to be a bit more clear about that because otherwise I get very, very frustrated and the and I, I get lost in people-pleasing tendencies that are extremely frustrating for me. I get what you mean. And if it's any consolation, I think you're the best teammate. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigourou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira L. and Jeremiah Thomas, for their generous support. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. So just before we get started, I just want to say that today is a snowstorm and we're <laughs> recording. So you know exactly where this is going. Oh, yeah, I can, I can feel the chaos from the kitties. Oh, the chaos. The kitties have been chaos since this afternoon, actually. <laughs>